0: Welcome to Los Angeles International Airport. For your safety, please keep your personal belongings
1: with you at all times. Few business sectors have endured harsher headwinds in recent years than the airline industry. Beginning in 2020, the COVID pandemic virtually wiped out air travel. Airports stood empty. Flight crews and ground personnel were furloughed or laid off. Airplanes got mothballed. But now, people are flying again, and airlines are still scrambling to get back to full speed. COVID aside, it's never been easy to run an airline. The industry is complex and competitive, with huge operating costs and relatively tight profit margins. So, it takes tremendous courage to pilot an airline. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Deep Purpose, a podcast about courage and commitment in turbulent times. I'm Ranjay Gulati, a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School. My guest this time is Ben Minnicucci, the chief executive officer of Alaska Airlines, the fifth largest domestic airline in terms of market share. Minicucci is the son of Italian parents who immigrated to Canada after World War II. He earned a master's degree in engineering from Canada's Royal Military College and served on a transportation squadron. Ben first signed on with Alaska Airlines as a staff vice president of maintenance. 17 years later, he rose to become CEO in 2021. I asked Ben Minakuchi to tell me about the life and work experiences that shaped him as a leader. Where did he get the courage to take the controls of Alaska Airlines? Ben says it came in large part from his immigrant family.
0: My father never went to school. My father was illiterate. And my mom only went to fifth grade in, in Italy. And I think that has a lot to do with my upbringing. So they immigrated in the 50s. And uh, it was after the war, they were poor. And and he, my dad had one uncle here and says, hey, if you want to work, there's work here. And they came, they landed in Montreal. and. My dad, all he knew was hard work all his life. My mom just knew a little bit. She went to fifth grade. Um, my dad would always, t- I had two brothers and a sister, and he would say, you know, you gotta go to school, you know, or you're gonna be like me, working like a, a donkey in the elements, you know, working with your back and your hands all your life. And he was always like, I want you to go to school. He goes, I want you to go work in a suit when you get to work and not like me, getting up early and, and working in the elements. But for me, that was very, a very, big part of my life, seeing how hard my parents worked to put their kids through school and get them all educated. And for me, it was I was driven by that to say, you know what, I'm going to be the best I can be and the best I can be for my dad. And I remember my dad, when I got my master's degree in engineering, uh, he didn't know how to say, but he goes, my son is a is a master engineer. He called him master engineer. That's, cause for him, it was like, I'm illiterate. And I raised a son to be like a master of engineering. And it was one of the things I'll always remember because he was
1: so proud. That's an amazing kind of starting moment in your journey. Let's move forward. You know, you join the military, and then, you know, you're a maintenance engineer in the military in the Armed Forces of Canada, and then you move out of the Armed Forces into civilian life and work your way into leadership roles to the point where you become one day... Chief Operating Officer, and then CEO of Alaska Airlines. Are there kind of pivotal moments in that journey that shaped you even as a person? You know, I remember one in particular when I was
0: doing my master's degree in engineering. It was, believe it or not, it was in robotics, and I had this brilliant thesis professor, and I actually hated it. I hated my thesis. It was extremely difficult robotics is you know extremely complex engineering and, and mathematics but i was studying control systems how to control a robotic arm and it's like controlling the cruise control in your car or the heating in in your in your house and right when i was doing it because i was when i came out of the field in the military i was leading big groups of people i was leading squadrons of maintenance people and that's what i loved i loved having big problems and here I am doing my master's degree because they said that would be good for me and I'm hating it, I'm in this all by myself and you know, trying to figure this stuff out. And then it hit me when I was doing control systems engineering. I said, I can apply this to organizations because it's a feedback control loop. So you have inputs and outputs and you have to have a controller feedback that takes it and continually drives it through a process to get the output you want. So if you're driving down the highway at 60 miles an hour, you put your cruise control, if you hit a hill, Your feedback says, hey, I need more gas. I want to keep it at 60 instead of just dropping down. And I said, I can apply the same principles leading an organization. And it was in that pivotal moment that everything clicked for me Right to say, I can change outcomes. I can change outputs of an organization by applying this theory that people don't have to know it's control system theory, but I'm actually doing it in my head and applying the input and output theory.
1: Now, one of the places you had to apply this was you got the job to be the station manager for Seattle, which was the worst-performing hub for Alaska Airlines. And did you apply a similar kind of control theory to the exactly turnaround that. of that?
0: It was exactly that. So Seattle, it was, I was probably two and a half years into or three years in, into uh, my Alaska career, and we were suffering badly from operational performance with seattle as as the worst station and we were at an off site and our ceo was just furious and said we need to fix it and they said we need a leader and we need someone to go fix it and i raised my hand i said i'll go fix it because even though i was there i was watching it the stuff was rolling in my head and i said you know i would even when i would drive the ramp i was working maintenance I would say, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, we need a process for that, a process for that, and in my head, I was thinking about these things, and when they gave it to me, they said, okay, give us a proposal, and on the weekend, I gave them a proposal, how I would fix Seattle. On Monday, I had the job, and in six months, a massive improvement, in 12 months, we had gone from worst to first as an airline in, in the country, and then for the next, gotta be 10 years, we were leading the industry in operational performance, And Because of that role, my CEO back then gave me the role of chief operating officer and it was, um, but it was all applying that theory, but in, in in a way that people understood it.
1: People are funny creatures. We love stories about heroic agitators who take on the status quo and shake things up. We admire people who kick over the apple cart, who challenge stuffy old conventions. But we're a lot less excited when it's our apple cart or our conventions. Ben Minicucci says his new operational system in Alaska's Seattle hub sparked a lot of initial resistance from employees. I had tremendous pushback. If I didn't have the support of my CEO,
0: because it was so massively different than what we, what we were doing. It was very process orientated. It was timelines and people had to do certain things at certain times. I measured everything. I gave people scorecards. I had metrics for everything. And I remember the first three months, I gave people Fs. You get an F, you get an F, you get an F. You're not following the process. It's timelines read, scorecards red. And and people were super upset because I, I, I completely undid how they were doing the operation. But I was so focused and I had the support. I said, it can't be worse than where we are. I know this thing works. It's going to work. And then people slowly started coming around. And they knew I had the support of the CEO back then. And then change started happening so fast. It was something like we caught fire. It was like, oh, my God. Okay, people finally started to get. Now, there was a lot of accountability. I built expectations, measurement, accountability. And I raised the bar so high on people and they didn't want to fail. It was just every day I was on it, on it, on it, on it until the habit formed into a behavior. And we had to go from creating a habit till it became part of our behavior and part of our culture.
1: So what is the general learning from that? That human beings, we need to have clearly defined processes with clearly defined metrics and clearly defined rewards. Is that the the takeaway that people, human beings, are left to their own devices and not want to land at the most efficient place. Sometimes you have to provide that to them and then measure and reward them around that.
0: When there's change that needs to happen, you have to push people into an uncomfortable spot they've never been in. And to do things that, it's kind of like riding with your left hand and they don't want to do it. And it's uncomfortable, it's hard, I want to go back to doing it like I used to do it. And it's to have the perseverance to push through that resistance map it out for them and, and, and establish, like, look, there's a reward at the end of this if, if we get it. But I just remember how hard it was for me because I had to have the t- tenacity and I had to be so resolute in my mission to say, no, I am going to turn around this station, come hell or high water, you, you're with me or you're not, and tell me if you're not because I'll go to someone else. And, and I had the backing of the CEO, and when it turned um, – suddenly people understood it and and, and it went and then people came on board and today the system is being used today so the system has been in place now for 15 years it was an, an incredible thing for me, one of the things I'll never ever forget. In
1: 2009 Alaska Airlines promoted Ben Minikuchi to Chief Operating Officer. At the time, Alaska urgently needed to up its game. In 2013, industry titan Delta Airlines launched a massive incursion into the Seattle market, Alaska's home turf. In response, Alaska acquired Virgin America, combining to become the fifth-largest airline in the United States. To improve Alaska's customer service and sharpen its competitive edge, Minakuchi and his team developed a new service framework for Alaska's frontline operations. Instead of keeping employees tied to strict company policies, Alaska empowered frontline workers to make decisions that would create what the airline called exceptional personal connections and incredible journeys for customers. It was a big evolution for Alaska Airlines and for Ben Minikuchi So Ben, you became a very, you said you were a very regimented process guy. Everything could be turned into a process with metrics and rewards. But once you were COO, after a few years, you suddenly came to realize the limits of this kind of thinking. That maybe there are downsides to it or you can take it too far. What was that, what was that transition for you? Like, What changed in you? What did you see? How did you have to more modify your own p- thinking on this?
0: You know, what I didn't like is the unintended consequence of fear. We were so good and so regimented, nobody wanted to be red on their scorecard. Nobody wanted to have a, a D or a C. Everyone wanted to be A, B, and green on their timeline. And they were. I created fear and says like, you know, Ben's not going to like that, right? And... You know, your reputation grew larger than life with employees that, hey, you know, Ben's on this stuff and and if you don't perform, it, it's, it's not going to be good. And you realize that that was not the place I wanted everyone to be and that I love working with people. I love winning together with teams. And I said, we're losing something here. And it was just the 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 light went on. I said, it's gone too far. And I have to bring it back a little bit to to realize that I want people to use common sense inside a framework of how we operate. I wanted people to make sure that they are their own individuals and they can use their own judgment in in tough situations to say, I'm going to miss that timeline element because I'm I'm trying to deal with this particular customer case that I'm going to take care of. And I also wanted them to see that it's not just all about the numbers. There's a people side, we're a company about people, we care about each other, we care about customers. And so for me, people still see me as the process, metric-focused guy who only cares about numbers. I was, I, I'm literally known as the numbers guy. Uh, by a lot of people who are in the operation who know me, he's the numbers guy. And even to this day, I'm like, that hurts a little bit because I'm more than just numbers because I care about people so much. And that didn't come through through all of that. So even today, I'm working on the part where I care about people, and because of what I had to do in 2008 and 9 to turn on the operation, that legacy of he's
1: a numbers guy
0: still lives with me all, all this time.
1: So did something change in you, or did you have an experience or a moment that suddenly made you realize, maybe I'm too much of a numbers guy, and I need to kind of backpedal this? Did somebody give you feedback, or were there kind of a a moment that made you realize that maybe I've... Tip too far in one direction.
0: You know the the one thing about running a unionized workforce is they give you really open feedback. You know they'll say things like you don't care about us and and you, know, you only care about the bottom line. You only care about numbers. And you know I did get that feedback from frontline employees. And anyone that's remember that you remember. Oh, it was flight attendants, pilots, mechanics, customer service agents. And when I heard it, you know it it hurt because. It wasn't true, but I understand from their perspective, all they saw was, you know, the leader saying, this is the bar for performance and I expect it. And, and they can never see the side in other venues where I would, I would advocate for them or, or I want to take care of them and, and do everything I can to make it a good company for them. So that's when you realize as you get to the levels I'm at now that, you know, you have to be really deliberate and thoughtful on how you communicate, and that those things are important, but culture and your how you care about people has to come through and honestly it 's this the thing i 'm still working today because I know that it 's the reputation I have, and reputations are tough you know to undo and and the new people that get to know me they say well they, they didn 't know the old ben they 're like gosh i don 't really he was like that because he every time I, I talk with him he 's nothing like it oh you didn 't know the old Ben." The old band was like this, right? And people actually, people who know me close said, you have changed, you have moved. They said, you know, you, you can move your leadership style if you're self-aware enough and put in the work, because they've seen me do it. And they actually, one of the big differences, they said, I saw a big difference after you came back from AMP. <laughs>
1: In 2021, Ben Minicucci was named CEO of Alaska Air Group, the parent company of Alaska Airlines and Horizon Air. Altogether, they fly more than 45 million people a year to destinations across the United States and Canada, as well as Mexico and Costa Rica. So Ben, what have you learned about communicating? You You call it caring leadership. How do you communicate caring while also holding people accountable? Because caring can be perceived as weakness, softness, tolerance of mediocrity. How do you carry those two ideas at the same time and communicate those effectively?
0: You know, The biggest thing I've learned on that, when the numbers aren't there, I never try and criticize the person. I try and criticize the numbers or or the output to say, If revenue is not there or if on-time performance is not there or if engagement numbers are not there, I am hard on the numbers and then with the person saying, look, it's not being hard on the person, being hard on the numbers, which they could be responsible for and saying, you know, this is not good enough. And having candor around the performance and not so much being critical, like you're not doing this and you're not doing that. We can talk about things that they could do better but that's one of the things i i'm really really aware of is not to attack the person but to focus on the numbers which have helped me in terms of communicating caring i you know what i'm really aware of how i start conversations i always thank people acknowledge the, the successes and then balance it with things that need to get better never to forget never just to go in and saying. Let's focus on things that aren't going well, to say, look, we've had some successes here, and I want to talk about some of those that have been going really, really well. Things I wouldn't do in the past. I normally go, as an engineer, I'm like, good, 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 yes, 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 bad. I want to talk about this, and I want to talk about this now. So I'm learning, because people need to feel like, hey, I've done all this work. So not all of it's bad,
1: and, and I've learned more to do some of that. So, Ben, you're CEO now yeah. for a couple of years. We all talk about CEO, lonely job, it's really hard job, you gotta navigate, make trade-offs and choices, you gotta appease a lot of stakeholders at the same time. It's gotten tougher, the turnover of CEOs has gone up like crazy. What have been some of the hardest things you've had to learn to do now that you are CEO, not just COO? You
0: know, the hardest things, like in COVID, it was really, really difficult because just as The country was divided on so many issues about COVID, whether it was vaccines, mandating vaccines, not mandating vaccines, whatever the social issues was, we were having the same microcosm in Alaska. And one of the things was, how do you navigate these very tricky decisions? Like, do you mandate vaccines or not? And At a certain point, you know, some companies were doing it, other companies weren't what was gonna be Alaska's policy. And as much as I got my leaders in the room, they were divided. My leaders were all in, you know, some said we should, some said we, we, we shouldn't. And at the end, I realized, like on these critical decisions, whether it's on vaccines or any social issues that are out there, whether it was, you know, the times where we had Black Lives Matter issues, I realized that my voice in the end wasn't gonna count on these critical issues that were out there and people wanted to hear from me. So I had to learn to say, okay, I'm gonna take all this input from folks, separate almost a little bit what I thought, right, and get as much information and then bring everything together and make a decision that I thought would be best for the company, our people, customers, because customers have to, uh, were equally impacted, the best thing for the company. It's the hardest thing right now because it's one of the things that I worry about the most is, you know, with everything that's going on around the world is is companies now are, are stepping up and having a bigger voice on, on social issues in the country. And one of the things is when do, you, when do you bring your voice in on something that's impactful and when to do it and how to do it.
1: So who have been some leaders who've really inspired you in this journey? Whether you work for them or met them or read about them who've really been inspiring to you through this kind of arc that you've been on? You know,
0: one, I just say like, like my dad, I just think of my dad like i said my dad never went to school not educated my dad was simple right he he knew how to work hard he knew he had to make money to pay for everything and look after his kids but he was focused like he was focused on getting that job done and what i learned from my dad is this this and maybe that's where I get it from, this, this driving force to, to, to get something done, to, to you know, very goal-oriented and to not give up. And my dad never gave up. He, you know, again, you couldn't have dealt the worse uh, hand than he did and still be as successful. So that's one I, I you know, when I think— Are there any particular
1: moments that come to mind in a, in a particular day or a conversation or observed him doing something that stands out in your memory? Well, one, I always remember as a little kid how early he got up to go to work
0: because he would smoke. So he would go to the bathroom. His bathroom was beside our bedroom. where we, we all slept in the same room. And I would smell the players coming through, you know, at like 4.30 in the morning into my bedroom every morning. Without question. That's what I smelled every morning. It was almost comforting, right? I would smell the smoke. Probably not good for me but, or us, but but I, I would smell that. And to me, it was that every morning you get up and that's what you, you – it was a, a, a discipline that always amazed me. Like And he did it for decades. Um you know, another moment when I, I saw he tried to start a business with, with a family relative, and it failed. And I saw the stress and toll he took, and, you know, he had to, you know, go back to his old employer, ask for his job back so that he can, you know, take care of his family. And I saw, like, how hard that was on him because it was a very prideful moment in his life that that's one thing didn't succeed, and he had to go back. and, and But he did it because he needed to take care of his family. So to me, those were impactful things for me, the things you have to do to sacrifice. And then I had a great leader at Air Canada who passed away actually only this past year, who was one of the most amazing leaders I worked for. And what he taught me was just, you know, the ability to, he was all about listening to people. And he was so calm. I would always admire how he would stay calm, listen, ask for other opinions, and I always try to emulate. And Today, I I try and think about that to say, in your position today, listen first, don't talk. So as a CEO right now, I don't talk. I'm not the first one to talk when I get into a room because I know if I talk and say, hey, I got a great idea, everyone's gonna stop. So I think back to Oliver and he would never talk first. He let every other person talk and make sure they were able to express themselves before I spoke. And I think that's another huge lesson I learned from him.
1: Let's switch to the topic of courage, and you know, courage is a subject we don't talk often about in leadership, we talk about it in the military, and courage is often described as taking action in the face of fear. So could you maybe tell us about in your life trajectory, were there any moments where you actually experienced fear, but you still had to do something?
0: I have a couple of military examples, and I'll start with. But
1: even COVID would be another. COVID person, is another
0: yeah. one. Yeah. Well, let me do one military one. Well, when I was in the military, because I was in the field, I was classified as having C-130 experience. We had a C-130 go down, crashed up near the North Pole, and I remember getting call at night and saying, "Hey, C-130, this tail number went down, and the airplane is probably in pieces somewhere in the North Pole, literally in the north near the North Pole." you're you're the lead technical investigator, and you're leaving on a challenger in the morning. Some technicians out of Edmonton will meet you. Getting that call petrified me because I had no idea what to do, right? And I was never so scared in my whole life because I was meeting a crew that I hadn't worked with. I had to come up with how we were going to do this, and I was just absolutely petrified. But, you know, there's nothing like fear to have you really focus on getting it done, and, and we got it done. But it was probably one of the most fearful experiences that I had gone through just thinking about it, getting there, seeing it, doing it, and getting it done was, was...
1: So what kept you going? Did you Was it the, the fact that it was a job you had to do, you couldn't not do it, and bosses told you, did you do it because you were told, or do you think there was comfort in numbers that the people you were with seemed to have confidence and they gave you, or were there some standard operating procedures? You said, listen, got to go back to my training. This is what I trained to do. How how it, I think it
0: was it, was. it was a little bit all of that, but it was also the, you know, a little bit how I was raised. You know, like you get shit done. You know, and no matter how scared you are, and again, like it could be my father coming to a foreign country without a language. That hey, you got to provide you. These are the cards you're dealt, and you're gonna have to make it work. You figure out a way to make it work, and and what kicks into me is even when in the face of something I don't know is. You're going to, have to figure, you're going to have to figure out a way to make it work. And so with COVID, it was kind of the same thing. As I, I, again, talking about fear, the first employee webcast, 12,000 people were on or something close to that. And getting on... And just
1: tell them what happened in COVID. Your sales overnight...
0: 90% of our revenues got wiped away. And, and you're burning how much money? 15 million dollars a day, 400 million dollars a month, and it was just excessive cash burn and you know we're running out of cash, you know, we hadn't got the federal aid yet and it was just crisis and you're talking to employees and I just remember feeling this overwhelming like just my just sick to my stomach because I knew I had to show strength and courage to give them optimism, tell them the truth about how bad things were, but also give them, inspire them that things will get better. And I had to get myself in there to say, look, and I'm staring at a camera because of course it's COVID and people are watching. And and I was hoping the camera couldn't catch my, just my anxiety and my nervousness, but th- that was probably one of the places that I, I remember f- being really fearful, but I knew that, People were depending on me, that I needed to show strength, courage, resolve. And I knew I had to tell them how bad it was, but that we were gonna get through it and that I was gonna make sure we got through it and we were gonna work tirelessly every day to make sure that we'd look after them and that this company was gonna make it to the other side.
1: So what gave you that courage? What did you have to say to yourself? Like in that moment, you're feeling petrified. You don't really have a game playbook. There's no playbook really on what you're gonna do. You don't know if you're gonna get federal aid. You got four months of cash. You're hustling to come up with a plan, but really there's no playbook here. You're gonna make one up. Now, what gave you the kind of the moral or physical sense that this too shall pass? I gotta get us through this and I gotta show confidence and resolve to these people while I'm not feeling it myself, right, so I gotta fake it a bit also. How did you talk, what did you say to yourself?
0: It, it's probably my history, my training, you know, I've been in leadership roles since I joined like the academy at 17 years old, right? You're always put in stressful situations and, and we got put in leadership roles at an early age. And I know that in a role as a leader, your job is to take care of your people in crisis, you know, whether it's a military environment or whether it's a business environment, your job ultimately in crisis is to look after your people and the company. And I knew that was my number one job is I got to look after my people, my employees, the company, and that they're looking at, to me, for direction, confidence, the truth. And that's what I told them. I said, they're looking at you, how you come across, how you communicate, how you talk about the present, and how we're going forward is going to make all the difference. So I told him, I said, remember, you're talking because over 20,000 people are going to watch this. And, and so you need to be at your best. And so that's what I told myself is you need to use everything I learned in the past from whatever I have to draw from, but I needed to be at my best for my people and for my company.
1: Any courage heroes come to mind? Any kind of people you've encountered who really, you've seen others exhibit courage really in the face of dire circumstances?
0: I'm sure there are. Now I'm, you're catching me flat-footed here. I'd have to
1: think, think a little bit. Even ones you've read about that inspire, you say, you know, that one, even if I read about it, you know, the thought of how this person did what they did. You know, I'm reading a book right now on Patagonia, on how they started the company.
0: And what I'm really impressed with is their leader and having, again, the courage to their mission and their purpose and not waver from it, and I, and I read it as inspiration for me because they're less driven by profit and and they're driven by doing good, you know, producing great products and to, and be great to the the climate, great to the environment, and to do it sustainably. And they are so committed to that purpose. I use it as a source of inspiration and in, in the role I'm in now is 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 there something that would actually take me off what I believe is true, take me off the path? And what would you know, could I stay really true on these tracks that I believe in today? is there n- anything that can knock me off? And I read that story, nothing can knock him off of that, no matter how bad things got. And so for that I, I respect that courage to, to, to the mission and the purpose. On
1: that note, can you speak to commitment what is the mission and purpose of Alaska Airlines and how do you plan to kind of stay to to that purpose? Well you know it, it's we have an incredible
0: history of growth and performance and but what I realize is our company is rooted in a culture of care and rooted in our values and that this culture of care is it, it's a place of differentiation in our industry. It, and it's something that is perishable And if I don't focus on it as a leader, because it can easily go away as you hire thousands of people over the years. So for me, my mission really is to ensure that this culture of care grounded in our values stays true during my time and will be an enabler to continued, you know, financial and operational success, but also an enabler to growth because we can carve, our brand can carve a niche in this industry. So that's that's what I hope for.
1: If I was to poll your subordinates mm-hmm. and I asked them, like, you know, give me a word to describe Ben, what do you think is the word you would hope they would use to describe you? Pick two or three. What words do you hope they would say, that's Ben? You described yourself as a numbers guy Mm -hmm. earlier. What are the words you hope they would be saying instead of the numbers guy? You know, I'm going to go back
0: a couple things. One,
1: I I, I hope they would say a very balanced leader,
0: a very caring leader, I hope is what they would say. Because at the end of the day, what I hope to do is take care of everyone who depends on Alaska our people, our customers, the communities, our owners. And I want to do all those things well, but I, I, it's not just about the numbers anymore. And I want people to say, you know what? He has changed over the years. This is a different leader than when he was in the military, than when he just started a business. And he's evolved his leadership style over the years where now he's created something that's sustainable, that's balanced, and he truly cares about people about the company in, in so many different ways. That's what I hope they say.
1: So when you came into this job, you helped transform the Seattle base, you become COO, and under in the time that you've been at Alaska, has been phenomenally successful on all financial metrics, right? You know, you're driving profit, you're driving top-line growth, you've taken costs down, becoming one of the most efficient airlines in the airline industry. J.D. Power's customer SAT score number one. I mean, it's an extraordinary story in terms of financial performance and success. And you've brought them through COVID successfully. You know, one day when you leave this job, What do you want your legacy to be? Like, what do you want people to remember you by? That, yes, Ben was CEO once.
0: I hope that my fingerprints on different parts of the company remain for a long time, that you can't erase these fingerprints. The absolute focus on safety and operational excellence by being process-driven and metric-driven will always stay. there. That's something that says, you know what, that was Ben's baby, and that, that is something we're going to continue to do forever. And I hope that when my lap around the track is done, one of the big goals I had was to be a national brand. And I said that, you know, when I started the role, to say, look, I want, right now a lot of people don't, when they think about Alaska, they think about this regional airline that maybe flies only in the state of Alaska. And I hope that when I'm done, and we say Alaska in the United States, that every person living in America will say, oh, that's the that's the airline that's headquartered in Seattle, that's maybe West Coast based, but they fly everywhere and they're a phenomenal airline they operate well, they care about their people, they care about their customers, they have such a great, they're this great little boutique airline that if I have a chance, I am gonna fly them. So this notion of us being a national brand, that everyone knows who we are, and what we do would be the lasting fingerprint
1: that I would want. And what do you hope that your father looking at you, who once described you as the master engineer, what do you hope oh, he gosh, would describe he you as? Oh gosh,
0: he You know, I. I think he would, in his words, he would say, my God, I can't believe he's my son. My Italian little son became, you know, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And I don't know how he'd call it in his words, but um, I think he'd be incredibly proud.
1: That's Ben Minicucci, the chief executive officer of Alaska Airlines, based in Seattle. For more of my conversations with leaders in the business world navigating the 21st century business environment, visit my deeppurpose.net website. While you're there, you can also find out about my book titled Deep Purpose. Companies that are serious about establishing and working towards a deep purpose find that it delivers game-changing results for the workers, shareholders, and larger society. So visit me at deeppurpose.net. This podcast is produced by David Shin and Stephen Smith with help from Jen Daniels and Craig MacDonald. The theme music is by Gary Meister. I'm Ranjay Gulati. Thanks for listening.